welcome to Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. I'm your host, Sevi Watmo. Today, we're going to explore the impact of the UK government's integrated review and the UK MOD's defence command paper. With the title Global Britain in a Competitive Age, the integrated review has been described as the most radical assessment of the UK's place in the world since the end of the Cold War and reveals a seismic shift in emphasis towards science and technology. The review highlights the importance of making the necessary advances in science and technology to respond to a rapidly evolving landscape of threats characterised by unregulated technology. This technology is already being deployed above and below the threshold of traditional conflict, which itself is becoming increasingly blurred, challenging our range of response options. What are the implications for Tempest and the wider aerospace industry? Here to share their thoughts are Richard Burton, OBE, Director of Future Combat Air MOD, Tim Ripley, freelance journalist and a prolific author on military and defence subjects, and Phil Townley, Director of Future Programmes, Rolls-Royce Defence. So, could we start by looking at the significance of the future combat air system being highlighted in the UK government's review? Richard, if I come to you first on this. Yeah, great. Thank you very much indeed. I, mean, I think it's a hugely significant moment for the Ministry of Defence uh, writ large, but specifically within that for the future of combat air. You'll have seen in the integrated review and the Defence Command paper a, a real focus on the threat threat to the country, threat to our allies, uh, threat to global security. And what we're seeing in combat air and our investment and commitment to it is an attempt to recognize that future threat and address it now and, and do what we need to do to invest uh, in the sorts of technologies, the sort of industrial underpinnings, uh, the sort of capabilities that will help us to, to overcome those threats into the future. So it's a really fundamental investment within the integrated review and, and, and the Defence Command paper. Tim, um, Future Combat Air System represents a significant investment for the UK government. Why do you think it stands out as a, a core area of technology? Well, it's, it's a po political decision that the United Kingdom wants to be able to build sovereign combat aircraft, combat air systems for the next generation. Uh, it's, it's almost a decision that we made akin to the decision we made in the 1980s to build the Typhoon and 20 years before that to build the Tornado. This is keeping the UK in the combat aircraft business. It's uh, uh, keeping products on the global market to be competitive and also to keeping uh, products flown to the RAF to be competitive in combat. So it, it's competitive industrially and competitively uh, on the industrial scene as well. Phil, keeping the, the UK in the frame in terms of the advancement of air technology is challenging and it, it, it's really, it rests upon the group to be able to have foresight of, of where they want to take the technology. Do you feel that it's a sense that you're steadily gaining momentum in your forward path? Yeah, go on. I think the, the announcements that we've, we've seen and we've heard are really significant. Um, combat air is so vital to the protection of the UK and our contribution to global security. Um, the investment of, of over two billion in Tempest over the next few years uh, is a significant uh, fillip to that statement. Um, and will enable us to really push those next generation combat air systems as we sort of launch into our next ambitious phase of program design. Um, 
what the investment also does is it demonstrates and shows that the UK is going to lead here. You know, it demonstrates the UK's leadership in combat air. Um, and also it signifies how we're going to push forward both nationally and internationally to make sure we deliver this world-beating system. Um, and that will continue to keep ourselves and our allies safe in years to come. And in a sense, the government is challenging industry to come forward with a whole new era of leadership in science and technology and to emerge as a, a science and technology superpower. And it seems obvious that the first country that manages to do this will have the strategic advantage, not just on the battlefield, but also in terms of economic growth and national security. So how will the Tempest programme play a role in turning this aspiration into reality? Um, Tim, if I go to you on that. Well, it's about delivering products to the world that people want to buy. Um, we have in the past been very successful selling the, the typhoon around the world. Before that, the tornado was, was a major European project. We had the Hawk aircraft. These were all aircraft that were delivered at a point in time where people wanted to buy them. And as we're in, a, in, a, in what you could call, a, in the old phraseology, an arms race around the world between the, the, the competing major powers, um, the countries that can deliver uh, products that are ahead of the opponents will win the market. Um, we're at a stage where the delivery of new technology gives you a, a battle-winning edge. So unless you're constantly upgrading that battle-winning edge, your products won't be desirable around the world. It's, it's, it's an arms race and you have to be at the front of the race to win the prize. Phil, do you feel that there is a sense of pride right now within the team that you feel that there is a, a, a real opportunity here to define the UK as a science and technology superpower? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point and it's a great question you raised there. So, so Tim really described quite eloquently about the what, you know, the what is it that we're looking to deliver. Um, and I really want to just make sure we're all focused um, as do my sort of Tempest partners on the how we're going to do it. And the how we're going to do it really is down to the people. You know, we're only going to deliver the successes we've talked about with the best people, you know, pioneering the future technologies. You know, we need the best scientists, the best technologists. Um, so one of the things we're doing is, as a partnership is we're committed to the development of new talent through our graduate development and apprenticeship schemes. If you think about it, the, the people we're recruiting today, you know, in 10, 15 years' time, as these products come into service, they will be the future leaders. They'll be the future world experts. And we've got to invest in them now. So being part of that program as part of their early education into the business world, working either in government or across our sector is, is definitely put us in the right step forwards to deliver this exciting program. Richard, it seems clear that the MOD is reshaping itself to become an environment that will support innovative new talent. Can you tell us more about how that will unfold in the coming years? Yeah, thank you. I mean, you'll have seen some language in the, the command paper about a, a sixth-generation combat air enterprise. And I suspect a lot of people are, are looking at that and saying, well, what is it? I've never heard of a, a generation of an enterprise before. But what, what we're trying to get at there is, is following up on, on Phil's comment, I think the recognition of the pace of change that we're going to be facing over the next several decades means that you simply cannot stay ahead of the threat, stay ahead of the market by delivering things in the way that we've previously done. them. And so a sixth generation enterprise, or for, frankly, any the next generation enterprise, is one that's got to be able to move so much faster than we've ever done before. It means absolutely taking digital first and putting it right at the heart 
of everything that is FCAS. And it absolutely means getting the people involved in the program who can seize that opportunity and fundamentally change the way in which we go about that. And, and that's all the way across the enterprise. It's absolutely in government, inside the way that we give our approvals, the way that we resource programs and deliver them. It's definitely in our core industry team and throughout their supply chain. And it's got to be with international partners as well. So it's a fundamental rethinking of the nature of an enterprise. And it's getting that factory up and running uh, that can, can keep the, the products uh, at the cutting edge of military capability. And part of the thought processes behind the rethinking of an enterprise is a blurring of the constraints and the boundaries that exist between, say, industry and academia or even one partner and another. And it it seems likely that we're going to see a lot more collaboration through research and development because not only is that important in keeping us uh, at the forefront of innovation, it's also going to be very important to our economic and social recovery after the impacts of COVID-19. And underpinning that is a supply chain that's going to be supporting all of that activity. So, um, Phil, can you describe how Tempest is working with its UK supply chain to pull through innovation in a collaborative way? Yeah, no, certainly. Um, the key thing to really bring out and emphasise, first of all, is, is, is Tempest and what we're doing isn't just about um, four large companies and government working together. It is a huge, uh, at first phase, UK-wide enterprise, but ever-increasing growth of an international enterprise. This is bringing the full ecosystem to bear onto the capabilities we want to deliver. We now have Tempest Technologies. They're going to pull on our existing and growing technology portfolio. You know, We've got a comprehensive research network of world-class universities, catapult centres in the UK. So we'll be making sure that we bring the best people together in the right rooms to have the discussions and develop technologies, whether they sit in a university, an SME, or in sort of larger corporations. Um, That, in turn, will deliver sustainable growth in skills and experience um, and will ensure that it keeps not only our industrial uh, prowess uh, ahead, but also our academic prowess remains, because it's important that the UK does have that full depth of capabilities. as a, as a core industrial partnership, I think we've engaged more than 600 suppliers all to date already. Um, so that just shows you the scale involved behind the scenes on this. You know, it isn't just four companies, as I said. You know, there's 600 um, suppliers already involved in this, and that's just going to grow year on year from here on in. And the greater the depth of the technology you're innovating, I'm assuming the wider the supply chain that will touch on. And Richard, are you building in a flexibility in what the future shape of the MOD will be after that process of putting the right people in the right room to have the right conversations? I think that the fundamental change we'll see is a much more integrated approach between the Ministry of Defence and industry. So it it shouldn't feel like... um, a contracting authority and a supplier. This is to be able to move a sort of pace. It's got to be way more more integrated, um, so that decisions can be made by the right people in a in a timely way. Um, but at the same time, I, I think everybody um, in, in Parliament, in public, in, in industry, and in, in government knows that we've got to do defence acquisition differently. And I and I all the conversations I've had across government is that. Everybody's up for this. Everybody is very excited about the sort of change that the Tempest allows. And I've 
I work with partners across all of elements of government, and they really like what we're doing in Tempest, particularly because it's reached out beyond the military sphere. So we're having great conversations with, with Bayes, for example, about the work that they're doing on the civil aerospace side so that we can pull technology in, achieve learning, um, and achieve spin-off from investment in military technologies. Tim, you've written about um, defence all around the world, and uh, I think that you've got a unique perspective because you've seen how it unfolds in lots of different countries. Have, what do you think uh, you've come across that is a great example of industry working with academia, working with uh, the government? Well, we, we've seen it um, change over the years when, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, these projects were very bureaucratic. They were very uh, transactional with, with antagonistic relationships between suppliers and, and the companies and, and between the partners in nations. And these programmes become became notorious for being bloated and over budget and late and, and very difficult and just soaking up loads of money and not delivering what the customers want. And over time... As, as the Cold War ended and, and countries be, be, became very, very conscious about the amount of money that these programmes were eating up, um, the pressure was really put on the Ministry of Defence, the armed forces and the defence industry to try and come up with a way that delivered aircraft, tanks or ships in a cost-effective and streamlined way that didn't eat up huge amounts of the nation's wealth. Um, I'm, I'm sure the government is very keen to ensure that the, the, the levelling up agenda, that the people are employed on this programme and that uh, the benefits of the science and education that, that comes from it flow into the economy. But as, as Richard made very clear, there's only a finite amount of money the government have to spend on this project. It can't be a, a black hole that sucks in money. It has to be done in a way that uh, produces a finished product to a price that the nation can afford and the partner nations can afford. And one of the, 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 the very important things that, that about this programme, which I think everybody sees as being vital, is it's a sovereign programme that brings back wealth and revenue to the United Kingdom and, and benefits the United Kingdom and our partners in, in, in an equal way. So um, this future structure that is about partnership, about team working about breaking down boundaries uh, it has to have trust at the heart of it so so people can do this stuff in a way that isn't seen as being wasteful and and and, and feather bedding uh, companies just because they've got the right flag in it, it on their sign outside their office so, so it, it is a, it is a you know it, it's new territory for everybody going down this route and uh, it has to work and part of that sense of building trust and a sense of confidence about the future is in spreading job opportunities across the country and making sure they're not just concentrated in the southeast. And the Tempest programme has spoken on many occasions about the opportunities it provides across the UK, including its supply chain. So can you describe more about some of the opportunities, some examples of those opportunities that have been generated so far and their geographical spread? Phil, if, if I could ask you that. I think the first thing to, to bring in to mind here is that the, the aerospace sector has always been a sector which actually has spread the roles throughout the United Kingdom. Um, it's always been a good levelling up programme um, and that's going to continue. Um, 
the work we've done, you know, we forecast that between 2026 and 2050, we're going to be supporting the employment of, of circa 20,000 jobs. Um, and that is across the whole United Kingdom. Um, in Bristol alone, you know, where Rolls-Royce uh, Defence is headquartered, um, there'll be about 2,000 jobs supporting it. Not just, obviously, in companies like Rolls-Royce and MBDA, which have a large presence there, but all the supply chain companies around us uh, that support and ensure that we can thrive and be successful. Um, we shouldn't forget, you know, both Leonardo and BA Systems are also, you know, significant presences outside of the southeast. So from Leonardo up in Scotland, who we'd expect to have, you know, over 500 jobs per annum, um, to BA Systems in Wharton and Lancashire, where, you know, 5,000 plus jobs will be just in that area alone. Um, and that's significant. You know, we're not just talking about, you know, 20,000 jobs of which the majority is in the southeast. The majority is in the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, but there are jobs, you know, throughout. Uh, and that's what will really ensure that, you know, the, the value creation is uniform and spread and also ensure then the skills that we need to deliver this programme can be delivered. You know, there's no point trying to do everything from one part of the country. You know, we need a sustainable population and sustainable universities to then support and feed these companies. Richard, these are very highly skilled jobs. Can you walk us through the types of roles that are currently feeding into activities? Yeah, I mean, I, I've referred to, to FCAS before as a sort of an opportunity for everybody because it, it, it goes so much further beyond what I suppose we would have thought of as traditional aerospace engineering roles. Um, I mean, I, I've got more of a policy background, for example. There's a lot of program management expertise required. There's still a vast amount of deep, deep aerospace engineering uh, delivery manufacturing skill required. And then increasingly, um, we're going to absolutely have to tap into to software expertise and digital expertise. And, and that is expertise that the United Kingdom brings. We just haven't necessarily really been able to access it from within the defense sector. So my role and the role of, our, of the other Tempest partners is to, to be an attractive enough proposition for the folk who are absolutely world leading in, in, in digital and in software uh, development elsewhere in, in the UK's industrial base and, and get them on board. And we, we've got to think outside uh, those traditional defense boundaries. Um, and, and Phil spoke earlier about the sort of the next generation of, of people. Um, I, I've started talking about a, a generation tempest. Because it, it really is, it's folks in, in, in secondary school and university now who are going to be the people delivering this as it comes into service. So uh, it's a hugely exciting thing, I think. And, and we, we found from, from the Farnborough announcements back in 2018 onwards, this is something people really want to be involved in. It, it, it's, you can make a career out of this. And whatever your background, whatever your skill set, and it, there, there really is a, a role for everyone. And part of an exciting dimension of that is the role, the creative role they could play in future-facing innovation. And Tim, um, it really, there really has never been a better time to become an engineer, has there? Uh, yes, indeed. And perhaps before you, you you talk about you know aerospace engineering and 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 how people get involved in it, perhaps we need to reimagine what that really means because. You know, lots of people see pictures of aircraft factories and they see hundreds of people installing flaps and putting wheels on and 
tinkering with engines. And that's an also an old image of what aerospace engineering is about. I mean, in, in the future, this, this project, this aircraft, um, the actual metal engineering or the, the composite engineering of it perhaps will be the, the, the smallest value in the product. The, 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 the sensors, the electro-optical imaging, the, the, the network communications, the, the automated weapon employment systems, all those kinds of things that will give the, the pilots of the future or the, the, the ground operators of the future, if this is an uncrewed system, the combat edge uh, will be in those technology areas rather than uh, the, 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 the shape or size of the flaps to, to a certain extent. So you have to think it more beyond what is aerospace in engineering going to be in 50 years' time uh, when this plane will probably still be flying. So you have to um, reimagine what it will be to work on this project. And it's a whole new environment that we're in now because the integrated review, the title is Global Britain in a Competitive Age. And it seems like there's going to have to be a balance struck between the need to maintain a distinctive identity in the marketplace while at the same time developing new partnerships with allies around the world. Um, so can you describe the work undertaken so far by the Tempest programme to work more closely with other countries um, and to feed in and collaborate into innovation? How far does that extend around the globe, Phil? Yeah, well, I think it's worth remembering that, you know, partnership and working with other international uh, countries is part of our DNA. It's one of the attributes that makes people in the UK so successful um, and has been the case for centuries, I would argue. Um, if I look just on this direct programme, you know, we, we're already making great progress with our international collaboration. Um, you've seen that we've welcomed in Italy and Sweden to the Tempest Partnership. Um, and we are, you know, supporting as industry the government in discussions with Japan to understand how we can progress uh, to identify areas of alignment there between the two nations. You know, and, and that is exactly backed up with what we've seen in this newspaper when it talks about, you know, thinking about this Indo-Pacific region. Um, that is very much the case, you know, so from those countries I've just talked about and many in between, we are engaging and supporting dialogue and discussions. And just coming back to a comment that Tim made earlier about the role for, for countries and companies, you know, and companies in particular shouldn't be about they have the right flag, therefore they're joining the programme. It's very much at the forefront of all our minds that we want to deliver a world-beating competitive programme. And to do that, people need to earn their role on that programme. And we want to make sure we're bringing the world's best together to deliver that. Now, in some cases, uh, companies will need to learn new skills and, and we will support them doing that. And equally, UK will need to learn new skills and international partners will help us learn those. Richard, with your long experience in the MOD, can you describe in more detail what you believe will be some of the skills that will need to be brought to the table to achieve all of this? There's almost a, a, an endless list, I think. Um, I, I think the ability to define a vision is the first place to start. Um, we, we need people who can really think imaginatively about what the technology allows us in terms of both the outcomes that we're trying to deliver and, as we've said, the, the how we do it. So there's some really fundamental thinking skills required before we get into even the engineering and the uh, and the program management delivery and then, and then the technical side, um, which is, I, th I think, why it's so important that we, we do 
think of this together with a range of partners, whether they're international uh, or, or industrial or cross-sector. And I'm really keen that we create a culture in FCAS that's very much an open door. Uh, in a way, perhaps it, it, you know, it, it has been a traditional industry uh, with experts who do their thing. But increasingly, I think we, maybe we've got to take it back to, to some fundamentals of, of an industry that encourages challenge opportunity from the outside that, that brings in other partners and different skills. Um, and the, the, the one skill I'm, I think I'm most focused on at the moment is, is how can we accelerate the implementation of digital first, a fully digital program across this enterprise. It, it is so critical to achieving this sort of pace, the transformation of, of our cost curves, and to achieving the agility that we need for the capabilities of the future. And so people who can really understand how to bring those digital skills, the digital underpinnings, and then think how to exploit it in imaginative ways, that th those are the skills I'm looking for. Tim, as we go further into a new age of digitization, do you think that it's it's very important that there is a, a strong connection between the visionaries and the people that are creating new uh, innovation in the digital zone and the people who are also creating the underpinning framework that will support it? Because in a sense, the digitization is only as good as, as the framework that it will sit on top of. Well, I hear lots of talk about the, the sort of digital future for defence and digital products and digital this and digital that. Um, and, and lots of people have difficulty visualising what that actually means in, 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 um, uh, in, in, in terms of nuts and bolts. Uh, and one way that perhaps you could describe it is, is you've, you've got your, you could call it your mobile phone defence product, which has an operating system, which is the really core of the thing that, that's, that makes it work. And then you've got all the apps that you operate on it and, and lots of different people make apps and download them from the app store and put them on and, and it, it does all sorts of magic stuff. And if you think in those sort of two levels of, 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 of involvement in the project and whether you have companies and partners who, are, who have the magic key to the operating system and are really design the thing and really get at the heart of what it can really do and those who are sort of in an outer constellation who provide the apps, who give it that value added and, and make it really zing, uh, and how you design the thing so it can take even more apps and zing even better, uh, that's a sort of a, a visualization that the man in the street can understand and can, can work for and can aspire to, to be you know, someone who's at the heart of the project or someone who just works in it for a, a few months or a company that works on it one or two projects and then does does something completely different so and, and those people who are involved in the operating system the heart of it they're in it for the long term they have the real understanding of the product and have a vision to see what will be happening in 10 years time of, of the next generation of apps coming along and will say we need to be ready to bring that stuff on and and be open to that kind of stuff so so it, it is so how you talk about it, the language you use, um, is at the heart of, of, of designing this system and, and making it accessible for, for, for people in the future to um, be involved. It, it's very, very clear. I've described this as an arms race. We're going to build Tempest to, to counteract the current generation of, of Russian, Chinese, whoever threat systems out there. 
So when we put Tempest on the runway, somebody is going to be working out how to defeat it. it it's an obvious thing. They're going to be working out there. We're looking at the pictures, examining the, 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 the video, looking at all the brochures, working out what it can do. And they're going to develop the next iteration of their products. So in 10, 15, five years time, our Tempest is going to be have to be bigger and better and do different things to defeat their um, countermeasures. So this cannot be a set in stone product. It has to be able to be evolved, advanced, enhanced constantly. And, and that goes to the heart of, of, of my description of, of a operating system that, that can in, in, in bring on board new technology, new systems very quickly. If we are bringing on, on board new technology, new systems very quickly, Richard, how do we support people in the right way to be able to keep up with that pace? You know, I, I, I slightly worry for people in my generation being able to keep up with the pace um, more than I do the, the, this generation that, that's coming through now. I, I think, and just back to Tim's point, what's so fundamental in, in his description there is you've got to start securing your system uh, all the way through, all of the supercomputing in which your analysis is done, on which your digital designs are developed, uh, all of the algorithms and the software that are developed, those have got to be secure right from the outset. So we, we do need to remind people that the threat's real. And in the way that we create the program uh, and put in those underpinning structures, those have got to be as, as robust, as secure, every kind of cyber threat, we're way years before we're going to see a capability. But, but then your point more broadly about getting people upskilled, um, I, I, I think the skills are out there. I think it's a case of encouraging people to, to, to bring a set of skills to bear that perhaps they didn't realize were relevant, important, vital indeed to, to combat air. Um, so, I think it's, a, it's, it's as much an attitude of, as an industry um, to, to make ourselves a bit more accessible. We do need to describe what we're doing in ways that are much clearer and much more attractive to, to the average science uh, bachelor's student um, going, going through university now. We need to make sure that the sort of diversity and inclusion within the industry it isn't one that's regarded as, as old-fashioned chauvinistic and so on. It's got to be an industry that's absolutely attracting talent, giving people the opportunity and vitally encouraging them to challenge the way that things have been done before. And just back to encouraging the imagination. We, we need people to buy into that vision and, and be prepared to take risks. We're starting this program off without knowing precisely what the military capability requirements are. We don't want to do what they had to do back in the 80s and set military requirements before the technology could catch up. And that meant basically by the time um, capabilities come into service, they're already out of date. We've got to develop this over time. And, and that, that's a hugely exciting thing that requires confidence, vision and imagination. Phil, how do you feel that there, you can find a way to enrich the diversity of the Tempest programme? Because words like creativity, uh, imagination, aren't those that you would think would come first to those who think they'd like to work on the programme. So how do you badge it as the place for visionaries? 
Yeah, go on. It, it is a real challenge. Um, and there's no doubt we're always going to, in the UK, struggle until we can change um, the demographic that does science and mathematics in our schools. Um, but we can contribute to that. And I think if you think about how we're describing the programme about the kind of people we're looking for, you know, I refuse to believe that this wouldn't appeal to everyone um, who is either at school or at university now. You know, we want people to work on a quick programme. So we want you to embrace pace. Who would not want to work on a programme which goes fast? You know, we want people that are going to be willing to be empowered, innovative, creative, um, adopt digital and, and bring those technologies in. I mean, if I use an example of what we've done in Rolls-Royce, you know, we couldn't have done this decades ago. You know, using the latest supercomputers, we can design um, methods for additive manufacturing using the latest machinery because that capability exists now because of computing. We could have designed them theoretically 10 years ago, but the technology wasn't there to bring those designs to life. And if I look at the diversity of my team that's working on the combustion activities I'm describing about, it's exactly the people that, that you have in your mind when you ask me that question. You know, straight out of university, really inspired. They just want to get on and do something different. And they're not looking to people who've been in the industry 25, 30 years to teach them, because actually we've never done it before. You know, they are bringing the latest technology with them and they will be our ambassadors. It will be that new crop of people, that new generation, that generation Tempest that's joined the programme. That will be our ambassadors that will go out and will bring the rest of the people to follow them. Phil, Richard and Tim, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. information age where the development of the human machine interface is gathering pace like never before, having a sound command of data and information is vital to a pilot's decision-making process. The digital race is on to acquire and process more and more information at lightning speed. With daily advances in digital technology, how do we take the right action to ensure the UK armed forces maintain the informational advantage? Here to share their thoughts are Steve Formoso, Chief Test Pilot at BAE Systems, and Lucas Chamberlain, Tempest Project Chief Engineer at Leonardo. So what is the informational advantage and what makes it so important, Steve? Um, the information advantage is about giving uh, pilots or, uh, or other operators the uh, ability to know what is going on and be able to make the best decisions before your adversary uh, can. So having... Um, the um, outcomes of uh, decisions or of um, uh, the way that the sensors or other uh, other uh, other devices are being utilized sometimes many many uh, iterations away from your own platform but being able to see those results before uh, your adversary can and allowing you to then make the best operational decision um, before your adversary can Lucas, what does the informational advantage encompass? Is that simply data or does that also extend to an analytics of the behaviour of the adversary as well so that you can predict the kinds of things that they're going to be doing? Yeah, of course. So I'm going to take a slightly different focus from Steve. So I'm very much more in the geeky domain, I guess, for some of my stuff. So for me, information advantage is, is threefold. So it is about that data, like you say. Um, it is about the process or processes you have they act upon that data and then it's about decisions. Whether that decision is a, is a pilot or an operator or the machine itself, um, you, you're really trying to get basically that data process decision in the right place at the right time 
uh, and therefore driving the right action. And when we talk about threats, um, we're talking about the evolution of threats, how they change, um, how they react to what we're doing, um, and equally how we react back to what they're doing. Um, and we're looking really to be doing that reaction based on a complete and correct information set. Um, and that's what gives us information advantage. So it seems to be a flow of action and reaction and a, a work in progress in a way, and because you've got to keep up with the daily incremental advances in AI and digital technology. So does that reflect on the pace of the development of the actual combat air capability too, incrementally introducing new improvements to the technology as you go? That question for you, Luke. Uh, yeah, so um, we tend to talk around um, frameworks and architectures quite a lot. Um, <laughs> quite a lot of people use peace after. So you'll hear architectural peace, which is a pet hate of mine, but you, you, we talk about them quite a lot. Um, but what does it really mean? Um, what it means is we're planning for change or reaction. So we're planning to be able to move data around, move decisions around, um, and put them in the right places. And those places may well be different um, in a system 20 years from now as they are today. Um, if we take let me think AI and ML, for example, um, they don't think like humans, they think differently. So logical design and logical structures work for us to understand as humans, but we may break those down when we move towards an ML or an AI route. Um, so you, you've kind of in that place now where we're planning or building our systems, knowing we're going to change them in the next five, 10, 15 years, and that's part of the process. Um, so I guess really the way we react is making sure up front we plan to change and react. And that's the kind of things we do. As a, a test pilot, Steve, what kind of support do you get to keep up to date with the AI and the digital technology? Because we're literally surrounded by data and there are masses of volumes of data being exchanged. So how do you keep pace with that along with your existing responsibilities? Um, obviously, we well, we spend a lot of time working with our, our teams. In fact, we're in the same building as, uh, as one of the teams that's uh, developing this area. Um, uh, so we're uh, we're intimate with uh, with that and how um, how the uh, how the concepts are uh, are working and developing and we've also tried to bring our previous experience into the uh, uh, into that domain as well. Um, we're also looking at uh, utilizing the experience uh, wider across uh, um, across industry. So we have um, a number of members uh, with uh, with differing operational. Um, experience to try and give us the wider spectrum of uh, of influence into uh, into those uh, those areas of technology. Um, that allows us just to keep pace with what is uh, what is going on and uh, and comment on the concepts as uh, as they uh, as they mature. So, from what you're saying, Steve, it seems to be a very collaborative process where the informational advantage itself exists in the space that's between the digital technology, the capability, and the end user. And as a test pilot, you've got a unique position because you're experiencing the technology directly the way no one else can through simulation. So, how do you keep close to the designers and engineers to feed in your experiences? Um, we're working with them all the time, um, and uh, so we we do uh, uh, we do sessions uh, in within the simulations uh, them uh, themselves, um, and also we try and uh, help them with moving a concept into something that's workable for the end user. Um, otherwise, uh, you you can end up with uh, situations where the technology has matured and in theory can give you. Uh, that operational advantage, but it's it's not yet uh, honed up enough to uh, to be used by that end operator. 
And Lucas, in turn, how do you build that feedback back into the engineering itself? Yeah, okay, so, so there's a couple of things to think about there. So not only do we need to understand, um, as engineers, I guess, how the system is going to be used, um, how it's going to be supported, and how we're going to exploit the capabilities, and in particular some of the new ones we're developing now that won't come to fruition for the next five to ten years. Um, but some of those technologies are, are truly kind of groundbreaking or kind of game changers, so they need to feed back in the other way in terms of changing tactics. How can we react and use the technology better with stuff we couldn't predict? So it, it's a two-way relationship, if I'm honest. It isn't a case of the, the end user dictates always how the system's used. However, ultimately, that is the person that's going to use it as a tool. So, so we need to go both ways. Um, there is another side, which is around uh, user confidence in the system. So yes, we can develop new and automated systems. However, when they don't quite go how we expect it to, or maybe how they change the way we think about the world, how, how do we trust that system? How do we have a, a pilot or a user or an operator that doesn't override what the system's doing? Because they trust the output they're receiving. Um, equally, how does a system trust another system? We're now moving to a place where systems that may be completely separate from each other in terms of physically are now interacting and they need to be able to communicate and, and influence each other. And how do we build that trust between the systems without opening ourselves up for, for kind of problems in that area? So, so for me, it's all about trust. It's trusting what the pilot's going to need and want from the system. It's also about the pilot or the user trusting the system and what it's doing. Um, and then that's a feedback loop as we go. So we feed into um, whether it's evaluation environments, whether it's reports into analysts and so on. We feed that through and then we receive positive or, or negative feedback back and we go back around that loop. So we're kind of just trying to feed that in on a, a more incremental basis and start to get feedback as early as we can. And that takes its way all the way through to the system where the system's given the pilot feedback and so on when being used operationally as well. And the integrity of the data seems so central to the pilot's confidence. How can we make sure we're not outmaneuvered in the area of the information management where adversaries could target the very data that we're relying on? Do you have to draw on other sources of remote information like friendly aircraft or ground troops or satellites? Uh, that question for you, Steve. I think we're always assuming that, uh, that someone will be trying to exploit that uh, that information and um, by the same token it goes back to the to lucas's point on trust um, um whichever information source that you're using we're always looking to be uh, to maintain our uh, high level of confidence in it and and to understand where that information has come from and and how confident you can be in uh, in using it um, that way you can you you lessen the risk of uh, of, uh, of being exploited um, as uh, as you're uh, as you're operating the system, and it seems that test pilots debrief each other. You know, when they come off a flight, they will tell each other their experience of the reliability of the data. Is that right? Uh, yes, um, and again, you will get a you will get an impression very quickly of how um, how a particular system is uh, is working, um, and how how usable it is, how easy it is to interpret that. Uh, that information um, and again a lot of that is the easier that is to do then the um, the, the more uh, robust the system is going to be the more uh, more usable it's going to be and not only usable it gives you a different level of freedom of action because Lucas that constantly evolving picture um, can be massively uh, enabled when you know that you can expand on that network at a moment's net uh, at a moment's notice 
Yeah, so um, again, it comes back to architecture. So, so when we talk around architecture, I guess we're talking about um, everyone within that operating environment. So whether that be an end user, um, the Tempest aircraft itself, um, loyal wingmen, whoever's in that network, um, we, we're looking to use all of them all at the same time. Um, and when we say all at the same time, it, it's to sustain, I guess, capability through um, the adversary when we when we come into contact. So what we're looking to do is we have a plan A, but we must have a plan B, C and a D as well. Um, and we're relying on the systems to make them equally available at all times. Um, so, yeah, you, you're right. So you're talking about stuff like networks, making sure networks are resilient and reliant. But then also other elements where we talk about auto discovery of system capabilities and systems kind of coming online and being able to intelligently feedback what they can and can't do and, and where they are and are not compromised. Um, and then the system reacting to that accordingly. Um, very, very complex though. So that must look, um, simple is the wrong word, but, but very usable, I guess, to an operator. Um, so they understand what's going on and, and what can and can't do things in certain situations. Yeah, because it, in the modern picture of uh, AI is that it's a bit like Minority Report where there are tons of screens flicking up uh, within a second. But in a way, that's exactly what you don't want because you want a, a linearity, a singularity of messaging for the pilot. Exactly. You need to know what very quickly be able to know what to what to trust, what's what's good information um, and just the you know, the fidelity of that information. And as, uh, as Lucas says, it can be coming from multiple sources and multiple times. You don't want the operators having to interpret multiple sources. Ideally, you want them to have a unified picture, um, which is, uh, is, is easy to use. And Lucas, if one of the sensors, say the radar, is being targeted by adversaries, how does the Tempest system of systems kick in to ensure that there's a constant flow of information to the operator? Yeah, okay, so, so um, just touching on what Steve said there is, we, we talk about it when we when we do design as well. So we really want a single source of truth. So we want one source that everyone's acting on. So when someone comes and, um, I guess, attacks one of our capabilities, and we are thinking multi-sensor, multi-platform. So what can we do elsewhere? What can we do with other sensors? How do we generate more information? But what's really quite important as well um, is sometimes information is not always the presence of data but sometimes the absence. So the very fact that you can't use your radar or it's being, um, let's say, jammed for one of other descriptions, that's also information that's really important that may give you indications of someone's posture or someone's identity or otherwise. So I guess it's always about that single source of, of truth, um, including, including the actions of others as well, um, and making sure that you're not just giving okay, like the good news stories, all the things I can see, but what can't I see and what's happening that my influence information or my interpretation of the environment as well. So by freeing up the pilot's time and condensing that information for them, the, the Smart Tempest system effectively allows for multiple missions to be carried out simultaneously. Lucas, can you give an example of how this might work in practice? Oh, I've been very careful here. I'll try my best. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the best way to think about this, I think, is um, if you had uh, more of a coalition. So you had a group of... Um, aircraft operators in an environment and um, they're going to be given different roles and responsibilities right so so we we do that through um, organization of our force but we also do that with tailoring and programming of our, our equipment so what we're really doing here is is giving a single core platform the ability to to re-roll or change based on the job it's given on that day 
Um, I can't go too far into exactly what those jobs are, but yeah. what's really important is the system is flexible to allow us to do that. So if we're doing something where we're defending um, the UK, that's going to look very different to if we're going in and, and going and helping forces in, in more hostile territories. So you're going to have the system in a different configuration. What's really important is that isn't a, a software change or a system change for us. That's just us configuring it for that day. Um, and that's what we're trying to build in. So you can have one aircraft that looks very similar, um, but feels very different based on what problem it's trying to solve on that day. Um, that's, that's probably where I'm comfortable going with that one. It's, it's very yeah, difficult of course. to around how we use these, these, these systems. Yeah. Uh, you know, Steve, it's a whole different tool set that a pilot needs because he is managing or he or she uh, is managing multiple missions at the same time. So how do you flex uh, uh, so that you can re-establish one as a priority, then shift that down as appropriate? How do you juggle in that way? I think a, a lot of it comes down to, as, as Lucas says, understanding what the system is, is giving to you. I want to say the system of systems is, uh, is giving to you and understanding how we're expecting it to to operate in uh, when things change, um, I suppose is where Lucas was uh, was earlier, because that could happen um, during, you know, literally during a sortie or during parts of a parts of a sortie, as uh, as uh, as a mission develops. Um, some of that is going to come down to training. Uh, some of that is going to come down to how the system uh, itself interacts, and the the better we make that system um, in terms of the the human uh, the human interaction with it. Um, Despite there being multiple layers of it uh, beyond what you can you can initially see, the better the awareness that you're going to have in terms of uh, of what is going on, and the easier your task is going to be, and the easier the training will be. And the air battles of the future seem like they're going to be won by making the right decisions at the right time, faster than anyone else. How will the Tempest system support this, Lucas? Okay, so it is about being able to move. Um, information around um but then also decisions around so i think i think the key part for me is any operator of this system is going to need the right information but then also um, be kind of in the right mindset when they make that decision so if someone is is being um let's say attacked or threatened by a system then they're probably in a different position to make make a decision they're probably going to make that far more emotionally or, or different to someone else so What's key is if we have a, a kind of a transparent boundary between systems, then, then that can happen across the formation as opposed to in a single person. So, so we talk here about having kind of like a common view of the world, but that also allows you to, to move decisions around because we're all making the same decisions, in theory, if we get there, based on our training, based on the same information. So I think it's really about having that flexibility to allow the operator to use it in any way they wish, um, and then you can move that around um, kind of at runtime um, or at, at, at conflict time. So um, for me, it's all about allowing Steve or, or whoever's in that aircraft at the time to be able to change who's making decisions and, and pass leadership around the group and rely on their training and, and their key skill set in that situation. And, and that's what we need to do as a system, make it very flexible. And Steve, how are you preparing to exchange information rapidly between pilots? Because I'm assuming you'll be all plugged into the same cloud, and you, but you'll be going at a tremendous rate. Uh, how are you preparing for these kinds of tactical changes? Um, it's well, it's part of the development process um, at the moment, and we're looking at uh, the different technologies to uh, to display that type of uh, information to us, and for us to communicate uh, in that way uh, as well. 
So you may have seen some of the some of the concepts um, already um, around uh, 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 that have already been released into the uh, into the public domain. So some of the um, augmented reality um, uh, displays are, are an example, and we're also looking at um, how how the pilot can best operate in the, in that regime if. Uh, if we've got a pilot or uh, or operator who is comfortable and uh, isn't concentrating on too many complex tasks, they're going to be able to be able to make and communicate uh, any decisions that they uh, they have with uh, with the other users. I think Lucas also brings up an, uh, an important point about the AI um, and interacting with uh, with AI is not uh, is something that we've we're going to have to refine in the uh, in the future so that uh, we can quickly and easily interact with a with a system which uh, although it appears to have a uh, a human level of intellect at uh, at times uh, operates in a completely different uh, different way and that's the key factor isn't it between man and machine or human and machine because many of us grew up with films like star wars that portrayed in a way that the human machine interface was always ultimately guided by human instinct so it didn't really matter how advanced the technology was it was human instinct that that guided the path forward and do you think human instinct will be a component in maintaining the competitive edge in the future that question to you steve first i think it's always going to be a part of uh, of any type of system like uh, like this um, to uh, to allow that uh, to allow the decision sometimes sometimes a decision is going to need to need to have a human um, uh, make it uh, in the in the, some of some of the uh, more difficult targeting decisions are a, a, a good example of uh, of that however it doesn't mean that the human is completely taken out of the loop or it, um, is is always completely in the loop should I say for uh, for everything else you can have the build up to a a uh, big decision worked for you so that you have as much information as possible to make the correct uh, correct call when it uh, when it comes to make the decision itself. Lucas, are you maintaining a space for human instinct in the technology you're building? Yeah, of course. So I think um, I'm very much of the opinion that the most powerful processor of complex information is, is still the human brain that's sitting on the aircraft. So we know AI and ML is kind of Really kicking off in the in the public domain now, um, but let's let's not, I guess, be under the illusion that that it's surpassed a human. It hasn't. Um, they are brilliant. And machines are absolutely brilliant at, at what you train them to see, or what they believe they've been exposed to, or, or what they've learned and seen before. Um, and we call this kind of narrow AI. So, if you give it a very simple decision to make many, many, many times, it's brilliant. It will outperform. Um, but then when we talk to something like general AI, so something more like R two D two or C three PO. Um, it's very different. Um, they're making decisions based on um, an understanding of unpredictable events or alternative outcomes, and, and humans still are, are, are powerful in that area. So you take stuff like like chess, and I know everyone's been watching Queen's Gambit, so it's it's kicking off again. Um, and there's a there's an, a finite amount, even if a large amount of decisions that can be made, um, and there's an ultimate outcome you're trying to get to checkmate. And um, that's not always the right decision. If I take this weekend, I was playing chess with my children, and then the correct decision um, based on, on a computer was probably checkmate. However, it wasn't the right decision. The right decision was definitely to lose so that she, she will play me again tomorrow. Um, and I, th I think there is a difference there between the way we see many, many machines honed in very different ways to solve very specific problems brilliantly 
to what a human can do, which is solve all of the problems to an, a, a good level. And, and it's the breadth of the human brain, which means it's always going to stay within that system. And in particular, target at those unpredictable alternative outcomes. So what we're trying to do is take away all of those benign decision processes where we can do that with a machine and allow the human to make the decisions that only at the moment the brain can make. So that's kind of where we are, I think. Lucas, Steve, thank you both very much for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you. Thank you. Join us again for the next episode of Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. <laughs>